6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah with a session titled, Monuments from Prehistory. A couple of other things while we're on this. Let's talk about the sacred cubit. It turns out if you take 10 million sacred cubits, you get exactly the radius of the earth from its center to the North Pole. Kind of interesting. And that's, by the way, to uh, hundreds of a mile. Pretty accurate. If you take uh, uh, 25 pyramid inches to the uh, cubit, it turns out that the polar diameter of the planet Earth is exactly 500 million of them. How do the ancient Egyptians know these dimensions? Or are they just coincidences? There's another thing they discover, and that is that if you take the height of the pyramid and make that a, rate, a circle, make that the radius of a circle, the base of the pyramid is exactly equal to the circumference. Or to put it another way, that ratio is the famous mathematical number called pi, 3.1459, and many more decimal places, but it's accurate to five decimal places. So they know that the Egyptians, contrary to our other understandings, understood thoroughly not only pi, there's also some angles that are the ratio of pi over e, for those of you that are in calculus. That's kind of provocative, because that didn't surface until the 1800s, Newton and all of that. There's an angle that gives you that ratio, which happens to be 51 degrees in 51 minutes, and that angle, thus, is the angle of the side of the pyramid. I want you to remember 51 degrees, 51 minutes, because it's going to come up again before we're through. These numbers that I'm giving you, and I'm not going to bore you with all of them, they appear all through the pyramid in various ratios, dimensions, sometimes in inches, sometimes in the sacred cubit. Now, the average height of the earth above sea level is 455 feet, and the, the height of the pyramid is 455 feet. Something else, the average depth of the ocean is 193 feet 7 inches below the baseline of the pyramid. And if you take twice the diameter of a circle who has a circumference of that uh, 3652.42, that is the, uh, the one that's equivalent to the solar year, it turns out when you run that arithmetic out, it comes to 2,325.2 inches, which, by the way, is 193 feet 7 inches, the average depth of the ocean. Kind of interesting. What, it, what a coincidence. This is a diagram describing, when I say radius, I'm talking about the center of the Earth to the North Pole, a polar radius, not the equatorial one. But it turns out to be exactly 10 million sacred cubits, or 500 million geometrical inches. Something else, those of you that have studied mathematics in college know one of the classic problems in mathematics is to square a circle. And it's generally considered an unsolvable problem using geometry alone. If you take a circle, that has as its radius the height of the pyramid, this base determines a, a square that has exactly the circumference of the circle. The Great Pyramid represents a solution to that problem. 
And it all hangs on this interesting angle, 51 degrees in 51 minutes and 14.3 seconds, which is the angle that gives you pi, in effect. This is just an embodiment of the concept of pi. Those of you that are architects and know, the gold, and know about the golden triangle, that's also obvious in all the internal design of the Great Pyramid as to how you develop the 1.618, which is known as phi among architects. I won't get it all here. That, that's probably a little specialized. When you look at the pyramid, let's take the small diagram first to give you an overview. The pyramid itself has these chambers inside, for, and it's the only pyramid that has that. When, they, when you get inside the pyramid, there is a descending passage, and it, it goes through masonry this far, and then it goes through bedrock down to a subterranean chamber, and then there's a little dead end. When you get here, there's what they call the ascending passage. There's a granite plug here to protect it for a while. But this ascending passage goes up. At this point, two things happen. There's a horizontal pa passage that leads to a chamber that traditionally is called the Queen's Chamber, because the initial presumptions, of course, were that these were designed for tombs, and some people still believe that. Others feel that that's a, a misunderstanding. There's a giant gallery that opens up here. If you look, you visualize it as inverted steps. It, is, uh, uh, it has seven tiers, if you will, that close in. It's about 28 feet high, to give you a rough feeling. And this goes up and enters this peculiar structure they call the king's chamber. What's also interesting is all these chambers have air channels to keep the temperature absolutely balanced. If they're not pl plugged, they, it keeps the, the, the temperature at 68 degrees. There's also a strange shaft through a grotto that goes down here. Well, first of all, a couple of structural remarks that I think are worth mentioning. This descending passage going through the masonry holds an accuracy of 1 50th of an inch within its 150-foot length. That's from here to here. Going through the bedrock from here to here, the additional 200 feet is bored through the rock with an accuracy of one quarter of an inch within the 350-foot length. But let me put it another way. You would have a tough time holding those dimensions if you were boring it with a laser. Now, how do they do that? Good question. I won't take you through all the history of the various uh, people that studied it from 1721 on. John Greaves in 1737, a professor of astronomy at Oxford, got interested in this. We get to 1798, Napoleon defeats the Ottoman Turks at the so-called Battle of the Pyramids. And, of course, his engineers were very uh, sharp guys. They're the ones that invented the slide rule and so on. Uh, they uh, discover all kinds of the major astronomical features of the pyramid. I haven't even got to those yet. And in 1830, starts another series of, art, of uh, astronomers and surveyors that get intrigued. Uh, and I won't take you through all that stuff. Uh, perhaps one of the great guys is Piazzi Smith, who was the uh, Royal Astronomer of Scotland, who spent a good part of his life uh, measuring this with incredible precision. Uh, a couple of other things. We mentioned there's possibly a biblical link here. The only piece of furniture in here is in the king's chamber. There is a, out of solid rock, carved a box well, it looks with a lid missing. It happens to have the exact volume of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, if you take 50 times that volume, it's the exact volume of the king's chamber, and it's also the exact volume of the laver in Solomon's temple. Now, 
I can go on. By the way, my part of my problem is that there, there are more relationships and things that I really want to, than, than what I want to bore you with. But let me mention a few others. I mentioned the solar year side area, the three different years that are, are mentioned here. Let me mention something else. The distance from the Earth to the Sun is about 92 million miles. Someone noticed that as you go up the pyramid, you go up 10 feet, you, if you, uh, 10 feet in length for 9 feet in rise. Well, if you take the height of the pyramid and multiply it by 10, by 10, by 10, by 10, you get 9 times, you get, uh, 90, uh, you get 91, 91,856,060 miles, which is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. That's kind of interesting, because it's only in recent years that we have any idea how far the sun was away. There's something else you should know, that there's the precession of equinoxes. It turns out the equinoctial year is about 50 seconds behind our regular year every year, and for it to do a full loop takes 25,827 years. That's called the precession of the equinoxes. I don't think anyone here has been particularly worried about that. If you if you take the two diagonals of the pyramid and add them together, they add up to 25,826.54 pyramid inches, the same distance of the precession of the equinoxes. Now, I don't know what you're going to do with all this information, but uh, a couple of other things. We'll talk more about possible meanings of these passages before we're all through. One thing you might want to note, there's an angle of these passages 26, 18, 26 degrees and 18 minutes, 19.7 seconds. That's the angle that this goes down. It's the angle this goes up. And this, by the way, sketch was done in 1909, but it's still probably as good as any of the other ones I've run across. Okay, let's talk about something else now. We read Isaiah 19 and suggested that Isaiah 19 and 20 seemed to have something to do with the pyramid, right? That's what started this whole excursion. If you take the Hebrew letters of Isaiah 19, and as you know, the, the Hebrew letters have numerical values, and these are the words that make up that passage, and you take those words and take the numerical value and that up, add that up, you get 5,449, and that happens to be the height of the Great Pyramid. What a coincidence. <laughs> Now, are these contrived? Are they accidental? Or is there something strange going on here? And if there's something strange going on here, what is the nature of it? A couple of other things to be mentioned. Remember I showed you the chart of the map which had the Great Pyramid at the, in the midst of Egypt and yet on the border of Upper and Lower Egypt, right? Do you remember that peculiar angle of the, the ascending and descending passage, 26 degrees, 18 minutes, 9.7 seconds? That points directly to Bethlehem. Yeah. Kind of interesting, huh? Bethlehem is 233 and a half miles from here. If you take a diameter of a circle whose circumference is the number of years between the erection of the pyramid taken at 2140 BC, and there's some astronomical reasons they believe that's true, and the birth of Christ taking in Bethlehem at 2 B.C., and there's some reasons that that seems justified. The difference is 2138, and if you multiply that by 1,000 in, in pyramid cubits, you get 233 and a half miles, the distance from here to Bethlehem. Kind of interesting, isn't it? What I'm not going to bore you with 
because there's too many variations here, but let me get, there's a whole bunch of people through the years that have looked at the chambers inside the pyramid and felt very convinced that the chambers, their dimensions and angles, lay out the whole gospel story. Okay? You can begin to feel why that might be. Let me give you an overview of most of them. Most of them involve seeing man on the descending passage ending into the abyss. This ascending passage, by the way, the astronomer Sir John Herschel did the calculations and came to the conclusion that that pointed exactly to the pole star when the pyramid was built. But he also did the calculations. And by the way, this passage is not in the center of the pyramid. It's 24 feet to the east, which allows it to have this peculiar property. It pointed to the pole star in 2140 B.C., but the 2140 B.C., the pole star was not Polaris that you and I know. It was another star at that time, Alfred Draconis. Alfred Draconis. It's a, a, a star that's associated with the dragon, or the serpent, if you will. This descending passage is viewed by many conjecturers that this is the plight of man. If you take some reference marks and do the right analysis, it comes out that this point right here is the giving of the law at Sinai and starts man on his ascending passage. When you get to this point here, you have, they call this grand gallery the church age. They call this line and the queen's chamber the history of Israel in contrast to the church and its destiny. And then, of course, there's a way of escape, speaking of Christ's crucifixion and so forth. There is a very elaborate story that I could paint for you. In fact, I have my choice of several of them because several different people through the centuries have viewed this slightly differently, all grasping for the key to the timelines to try to see if it's predictive. What they get into is things like this. This is the ascending passage. And when you take the pyramid inches and you come to the birth of Christ and take the, what they call the Christ angle, that's the common name for that angle, you can get to his baptism by swinging it up here, you can get to his crucifixion by swinging it there, which is the beginning of the Grand Gallery, and on it goes. There are many, many classical analyses of this, and uh, none more famous than Adam Rutherford, in which he, he does all his dating. And as you go down this pyramid entrance, there is a score of some uh, very key lines that seem to date the building of the pyramid itself. Anyway, to make a long story short, he, of course, predicted the end of the church age in 1914 and the beginning of the... You know, anyway, it didn't quite work out that way. We're in sort of a strange... I want you to stay for a while. Don't jump to any quick conclusions. Because there are all kinds of people that have gotten on the pyramid kick. And I've tried to give you enough about the pyramid so you can at least respect why people get intrigued with this thing. In fact, if you start getting into it, you'll discover it's really addictive. There are so many fascinating aspects to it. You can spend a lot of your time in that area. Oh, one other thing I forgot to mention, the capstone of the pyramid is missing. Most scholars believe it was originally in gold. The pyramid where it was built was bright and shiny white. They felt there was a, very likely it may have been a gold capstone. Well, that's just conjecture. But the capstone's missing, and, and uh, some people feel that it's a cornerstone that the builders rejected, and so on. And there's a whole thing you can build, drawing it, doing an analogy 
of the stone that was cut without hands and all of that. But I want you to be cautious until I'm through before you jump on the pyramid kick because I think, first of all, generally speaking, we can be very well advised to treat anything that seems to impact the Bible with great caution. We often think of the Shroud of Turin, which on the one hand was very intriguing, but putting your faith in those kinds of things is dangerous. Most of you may recall in the book of Numbers, when Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, you all know the story, especially since Jesus makes reference to that, the serpent in the wilderness, this brass serpent on the pole that uh, uh, was the solution to the plague of the serpents that was at that time. What some of you may not know, we'll get into it later in Isaiah, that that brazen serpent was still around in the days of Hezekiah, the king in Isaiah's time. You know, a lot, thousands of years later, okay? It had become a fetish. It had become an object of worship. It was so bad that Hezekiah destroyed it. And there's a real lesson there. Because in the, in the brazen serpent case, there was no doubt of its authenticity. It was the brazen serpent of Moses in the wilderness, apparently. And yet it became a problem. And whether you're talking about splinters of wood off Noah's Ark, or whether you're talking about the Great Pyramid or something else that sounds intriguing, be careful. It's my personal hypothesis that Satan will use these things to derail you from a study of the Word of God. I'd like us to pause in our visit to Cairo and fly up to England. I want to go to the Salisbury Plain now a place that is known as Stonehenge. And the word henge really meant hanging, hanging stones. This is a monument that in many respects is even more fascinating than the Great Pyramid. And of course, uh, what we're talking about here is a monument that is apparently built several thousand years before Christ. It was originally caught everyone's notice because it was regarded by many scholars as the oldest, you know, since there were some stones on top of another one of the oldest structures. Turns out they've just underestimated. There's a lot more going on here than at first meets the eye. We're talking about a monument that represents a circle of about 300 and, I think it's 320 feet in the diameter. There's a bank around it that's approximately six feet high and 20 feet wide, just inside that bank, there are a, a group of holes, 56 of them, that are known as the Aubrey holes, because they that was the first guy that discovered them, because they had been covered up earlier. There are holes that were dug and filled with chalk, never, hold any, never held anything else. Some of them are not chalk, some of them are human cremations, which is kind of a colorful footnote. We're going to discuss what obviously I'm getting at is in, in the early 60s, Gerald S. Hawkins made history by discovering with the computer that this thing actually was an astronomical computer and so with some very fascinating capabilities. The capabilities that it has happens to hang heavily on four key stones, known as station stones. One here, one here, one here, one here. Why am I bringing this up? For a number of reasons, one of which, if you line up these two station stones, they line up to 118 degrees azimuth, and if you go on that azimuth over Great Circle Route, guess where you end up? at the Great Pyramid. The properties of this uh, monument hang on the fact that this is a rectangle. There is only one latitude in the Northern Hemisphere where this will work the way it does. This monument is within a mile of that latitude. Incredible engineering in a sense. 
lining this up with north, the key axis of the pyramid is over a thing called the heel stone. That's the key to the whole thing. The word heel, no one knows where the name came from. But the Welsh name for sun is Hael, and the Greek name for the sun is Helios. So most people think that linguistically that it clearly has to do with the sun because it's been recognized for centuries that midsummer sunrise, the sun at midsummer, rises exactly over the heel stone when you line it up through the monument. By the way, all these stones I'm going to describe in effect create gun sites or windows for certain intersections on the horizon. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about what the thing consists of. There's a row of holes out here called the Aubrey holes, and there's a row of uh, Y holes and X holes, for lack of better names. Then there's the monument itself in the center. Around the outside edge, are, there are sarsens. That's essentially a silicated uh, sandstone. Then there's a row of what they call blue stones, because it's a kind of stone that is blue when it's wet. Then there are the famous trilithons. These are two stones with a lintel across, and there's five pairs of those sarsens. And then there's another this uh, horseshoe of, of bluestone. So the axis is here. There's a bluestone horseshoe, horseshoe, the trilithons, then the bluestone circle, and then the sarsen circle. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. I I'm not trying not to bore you with all this together. But let me give you a feeling for the um, uh, trilithons, the big ones here. There's five pairs in total. The stones weigh 50 tons. Okay? What also is interesting is the way these things are built, and this is, goes for the, these things, but also the ring around the outside, the stones themselves, say seven feet across and however high, has a uh, uh, mortise and tenon construction. The top stones are curved, fit those, and also have tongue and groove. All of this was done on a remote site and brought to the Stonehenge site. The Sarsen circles came from the Priscilla Mountains, that's in South Wales, about 240 miles away. And they weigh from uh, uh, 30 tons to 7 tons, depending which way you're talking about. The Blue Stones came from Marlborough Downs, about 20 miles away. They weigh 30 tons each. Now, by the way, these things are all different heights, but planted in such a way as to make it the top of it level. If you take the height of that and multiply by the number of stones, 30 stones, you get the exact height of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. If you take 10 times the inner, circ the, the, the inner uh, circumference, you get the perimeter of the Great Pyramid. Okay, so much for all I say. That's, all, that's the interesting monument. Let me uh, uh, indicate uh, what Gerald Hawkins did. He knew that for centuries everybody understood that monument had something to do with midsummer sunrise, but no one had analyzed it further. He took the position of all the stones and all the holes, X, Y, Aubrey, all that, and he digitized it and put it on a computer. Then he also took an ephemeris, which is essentially a, a database of all sun, moon, planet, and star positions. And he had the computer exhaustively searching. Every one of these stones, if you're on Stonehenge, you realize every place you look, it's like a gun sight. It lines up under all different kinds of circumstances. So the computer exhaustively looked at that. With the stars, no alignments. With the planets, no alignments. However, in the dozen different extreme positions of both the sun and the moon, he got over a dozen 
confirmations. In other words, this thing clearly somehow had been designed to uh, highlight the extreme movements of both the sun and the moon. Now, and he published a paper on that basis, which shocked the archaeological world. And if you know anything about how objective scientists are, <laughs> I think that's an uh, you know oxymoron, but uh, objective in science. I'm always intrigued because they have such a tradition of objectivity, and yet I've never seen more emotional reactions than if you talk to a astronomer about creation or or if you, uh, and on it goes. And the archaeologist did not accept his findings because what does he know? He's an astronomer. But his papers gained a lot of uh, credibility. Some guy wrote, um, in among the many letters he got, one person wrote him a letter pointing out a legend, the documentation of an ancient Greek legend, how the sun god Apollos used to visit the British Isles every 19 years, some kind of legend. He said, is there something at the monument that occurs every approximately every 19 years? Well, that intrigued Gerald Hawkins, so he went back to the computer. And by studying further, he discovered that the uh, eclipse cycle at Stonehenge is every 18.61 years. And if you use the Aubrey holes the right way, it'll predict eclipses. And by using the X and Y holes, you can even predict the day, if you do it right. And then he published that in his famous book, Stonehenge Decoded, and became famous. CBS News did a live report uh, on site showing the midsummer sunrise exactly as it predicted and all that stuff. And some of you may remember that. I think it was about 1964 when all that happened. So Gerald Hawkins is the de facto expert on Stonehenge, and of course, uh, uh, all of that uh, speaks for itself. I'm intrigued with one particular observation. The archaeologists point out that Stonehenge was built over a 300-year period, and then strangely abandoned. And one of the things about Gerald Hawkins' computer models is that this eclipse business has an error in it once every 300 years. So you can guess what the priests that were in charge uh, must have thought when it finally goofed. People start noticing some other things. The angle of the heelstone to north is, if this is north, is 51 degrees, 51 minutes, the very angle that makes up the Great Pyramid. And so they start studying the possibilities of this thing relating to the Great Pyramid. Okay, fine. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.